Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Chris D. from The Flesh Eaters, and you're listening to Deeper Digs in Rock. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now... On with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Christian Swain here. I am the rock and roll archaeologist, and we are back in Aftermaster Studios in Hollywood. Hey, uh, by the way, if you haven't already, do take a look at these amazing studios right in the heart of La La Land. Uh, just go to aftermaster.com. All right, this week's news. Uh, so if you haven't been paying attention to the podcast feeds, we have begun pulling shows out of our big pipe and giving them their very own feeds. Right now, you can find this show, Deeper Digs in Rock, as a standalone feed for your listening pleasure. And of course, there is always the big daddy, the one that started it all, the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. That, too, is available on its own. So if uh, some of you are dedicated to just that show or this one, uh, there they are for you. Of course, the big pipe with all the shows will always be there for the dedicated digger. All right, that's the headlines, finally, and this is the one that matters most to us. If you enjoy what we do here, then please, please, please tell a friend about Rock and Roll Archaeology. You don't know how much that helps. Thank you. All right, that takes care of the housekeeping. So let's meet today's guest. many of you out there in Podland actually know what Kodachrome is? Okay, okay, how many of you have taken a roll of film from Kodak and put it in a camera, closed it up, and shot 12, 24, 36 frames, and then do it over again? Uh, any of you developed the film in a darkroom and then made prints? How about snuck a camera into a concert back when, on all tickets it was printed, no cameras allowed? How about hundreds of times, and with, like, telephoto lenses and stuff? Well, <laughs> that is what our special guest today did for a time back when rock and roll was king. Our guest is Julian David Stone. Now, today he's an author and filmmaker, but when he was a young man in college, he was an outlaw photographer. And he's just released a beautiful coffee table book with uh, some, some of the most exciting shots he took in that short career. Titled No Cameras Allowed, My Career as an Outlaw Photographer, 1981 to 1987, from our friends at Duration Press. So, let's sit down with Julian and get these stories on some of the iconic performers and harrowing adventures he took to shoot them. Ladies and gentlemen, 
Julian David Stone. Welcome to Deeper Digs and Rock, Julian Stone. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, we are excited to have you here. It's a very interesting uh, book. It's a, a little bit different uh, than uh, a lot of the guests that we've talked to because you're not really a photographer of rock and roll music uh, anymore, right? You're, you, that's not what you do. No, no. This was a period of my life where I was very much a photographer of rock and roll back, back in the 1980s. And it was about a five, six year period where it was all I did and I was obsessed with it. And then I kind of hung it up in uh, about 1987. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, let's get a little bit of your your background. Um, uh, you uh, uh, you grew up in the Bay Area, is that right? That's correct. And then migrated down to the uh, the warmer climes of uh, Southern California. Yeah, I came down here to go to California Institute of the Arts to study filmmaking, and mm-hmm. I've pretty much been here since about eighteen or nineteen years old. But I'm back up in the Bay Area, and I'm not exaggerating about t- at least twenty times a year because I still have family. families up there and yeah. that sort of thing. Right. So it's a it's right. a the, the highway. Five is like just a long driveway for me pretty much at this mm-hmm, point mm-hmm. so so how how did you become an artist i mean cal arts is uh, you know that's that's you're only allowed to go there if you're an artist so. <laughs> you know i i loved photography i loved filmmaking i loved music rock and roll and all of it and that was just the school that that i ended up at it was it, I, I can't remember exactly but i do know that a couple of people who were in high school with me ended up at cal arts and mm-hmm. i wasn't particularly close with them but they were sort of the well-known figures in the the artier students at, at my high school, and so I sort of followed them. So that's kind of how. Oh, that's I ended where up. they ended up. Going. Yeah, okay. they were animators. Actually, one of it was two guys, and they've done very well. One of them directed The Lion King back in 1993. Rob Minkoff. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, he, wow. he went to my high school, and another uh-huh. guy named Kirk Wise directed Beauty and the Beast. And the two of them were kind of the, the like I said, like the art studs, if there is such a thing in high right. school. Wow. And I'm like, oh, they're going to Cal Arts. I'll go to Cal Arts. Right, <laughs> so. right, right, right. Um, but you don't do really photography today. You're more of a filmmaker, right? Yeah, it's like I said, uh, all even even during a, when a lot of this was going on, I was studying filmmaking and doing the rock photography on the side, and then it reached a point where the rock photography was actually going was exploding. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't. And have we'll to, talk about that as we go through the story. But, yeah, and, and and I didn't have time to do both, and I just I had to choose, and and I chose filmmaking, and that's been the last twenty thirty years, and sometimes I'm not sure if I made the right choice, but. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, we all have those sort of paths that we, those <laughs> yeah. crossroads that we look back and go, you know, what if I had taken the other path? Yeah. Right, right. right. I get you. I get you. Um, uh, so, you know, music seems to have always been uh, a part of you in your soul. Absolutely. Uh, but you're not a musician, right? No. And that's kind of how the photography started. I wanted to be a rock star like a lot of, you know, pretty much every uh, every kid wants to be. And yeah, last- yours truly included. So, yeah. <laughs> well, with me, it lasted about five seconds after I picked up a guitar and realized I had no musical talent. And I just, I could not, it's going to sound funny for someone who loves music so much, I could not play consistently a note. Like, I couldn't tell the difference. Like I, I remember it was it's in the book and it was actually a French horn where I was trying to play it in class and the teacher oh, the just, teacher yeah, said, just got in fear and said, sometimes you can play it right and sometimes you can play it wrong. And I couldn't tell the difference. Like I was playing it the same each time and my ear couldn't hear the difference. And so that combined with, like I said, picking up a guitar and realizing this wasn't going to happen. I, I sort of moved into the, the photography became my way into into rock and roll. 
so let's get our younger diggers, our fans, we call them the diggers, <laughs> uh, an understanding of what uh, the camera policies used to be <laughs> yeah. before everyone had a smartphone at a concert. You could not bring them in. Uh, it was it not, used to say on the tickets, uh, on no the cameras ca- allowed. Yep, no cameras allowed. Some had it posted on the walls. I mean, as you would get closer to security, they'd have a whole list of, of contraband, and cameras were definitely one of them. And also to give a context, you know, the, the cameras, particularly that I was bringing in, these were big cameras. This was 35 millimeter. You know, it wasn't a little tiny, you know, digital camera or even yeah, a you point had, You had to actually stick film in it, yep. you know, things like that. Yep. Uh, you had, you so had, you had yeah. to have a body that could, uh, you know, uh, hold uh, a, 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 um, uh, a roll of film yep. and all of that. And then you had various lenses that you had to change out to mm-hmm. get different perspectives, right? Exactly. Mo- multiple lenses, multiple rolls of film. I mean, just bringing in 15 or 20 rolls of film so you could shoot 300 pictures that took up a, a lot of space you know today a digital card will take thousands of right, photos right 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 yeah of course you know or anybody over 30 listening to this is going uh yeah right <laughs> no, we know yeah i miss those days you know right so, but yeah no cameras allowed right you uh that was the policy this this was uh and to do so was uh you know putting your uh your life at risk yeah i i uh it, it definitely your well-being let's put it that <laughs> yeah, way <exactly. laughs> you know i don't know if you're gonna get killed okay but- i over exaggerated no, but it felt that way. I mean, you know, when I was running from roadies or, you know, there were, you know, there were moments of where's this going to end? You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I'm sure there were plenty of looks from the stage of like, who the fuck is that guy and why does he have a camera out there? Yeah, I I, uh, I was actually shooting. Uh, I'll sort of just jump ahead to a story, but I was uh, I was shooting Bonnie Hayes and the Wild Combo. If you remember them, mm. they uh, they didn't last a long mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Bonnie Hayes ended up like sort of going uh, joining Melissa Etheridge's band or oh, something, but okay. they, they had a little bit of a run as a band in a couple of, I think, one top 40 hit. And they were actually, it was a band that occasionally someone would come to town who didn't care about cameras. So I took a camera in with a flash. I figure I'll take advantage of this since they don't care. And I remember using this flash from the stage and sort of like, at, at, or, or from the audience and blasting the stage at a certain point. And there's a picture of it in the book. The uh, lead singer or the lead guitarist came over and just kind of stood over me and stared down like, enough with the flash. We can't see anymore up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The lights are for you. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. First night of uh, guerrilla photography. And just, just uh, to remind everybody, again, no cameras allowed. My career is an outlaw rock and roll photographer um 81 to 87 so uh our first night guerrilla photography was april 28 1983 tell us about that night sure so like i said i was obsessed with rock and roll and discovered i was not going to be the next eric clapton and was really into photography so i thought this will be my way into the world and the Ramones were coming to town, and I loved the Ramones, so I figured, well, this is it. I'll go down there, I'll shoot the Ramones, and this will be what I'll try to do now to be part of rock and roll. So I show up at the club, camera bag over my shoulder. Oh, you you thought? Oh, I thought th- th- I'm just going to walk. A photographer. Yeah, uh, I, I where do I get my pass? <laughs> it, w- it wasn't even a pass. I just figured I'd walk in and take pictures. I didn't know it was any different than going to the county fair, you know, or so, you know, or any other place you might see a concert. So I just thought I was going to walk in, and a guard just stopped me and laughed at me and pointed at a sign that said no cameras allowed and said get out of here and I went back to my car and I was about to dump the equipment in and I went you know there's got to be a way around this and fortunately this being the 80s I had a nice wonderful pair of tube socks and I quickly shoved the camera body in one side and, and one camera lens in the other a little 50 millimeter lens and a few rolls of film and went back the guard didn't see any anything wrong and I went into the show and went into the bathroom put everything together got out as the Ramones hit the stage and started shooting and after that I was just addicted and and over the next five or six years I took over 10,000 pictures almost all of it smuggling in my equipment of all the big bands of, of the 1980s yeah yeah just as these guys are coming up up, uh, yeah, and uh, becoming really well known, which then you know after a while you get a little well known uh, as a as a photographer, and we'll we'll talk about that in, yeah. uh, in a bit. Uh, so the so the um, uh, the Ramones were the first uh, the first time that you actually brought that in. You um, 
you you got the uh, the excitement of uh, the taboo uh, mm-hmm. aspect. Uh, plus, you came away with some really great shots. Yeah, I was so. so happy with the pictures and just the excitement of pulling it off and the fact that you weren't allowed to do it made it all the more, you know, it was kind of like being my way of being part of the rebellion that is at the heart of rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is a, a big fact. What do you think about the that you know back in the day, you know these guys uh, and their uh, management uh, were 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 so insistent on you know careful crafting of the image, um, uh, but today now you know everybody's got a smartphone that is taking pictures, and you know it's 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 now encouraged. So really, did, did, would it made it that much of a difference if everybody had brought a camera in back in the day? Well, it's hard to say because when the smartphone started, you know, I I still go to a lot of concerts. I don't photograph formally. I noticed that they attempted to stop it, like in the year, you know, like 07, 08 when the smartphone started. And I remember noticing that, that they were attempting. Yeah. And then they gave up. Now yeah. now it's ubiquitous. Yeah. Although they don't, you still see shows where if somebody's holding it, where they're obviously filming, that they tend to still go after. Like they don't mind yeah, if yeah, you're they, taking they, pictures. They, oh, okay. So now it's uh, down to the uh, um, uh, the uh, a movie version. Right. Uh, and and <laughs> even that has failed. You see. Come every, on. Yeah. I've every, seen an entire concert. Right. Now, it's not great. Great. Uh, I don't understand why. You know, uh, there are some bands. If you remember, uh, the same thing with the recording. You know, um, you know, famously, you know, there's the Grateful Dead and some of the other mm-hmm. uh, jam bands who you know have a space specifically right. uh, for the recorders, uh, and. Um, uh, you know, granted, uh, uh, bands like that tend to uh, each night be different, and and so right. you're capturing something uh, unique. Um, but I also remember uh, uh, in uh, oh, like twenty years ago, where bands would just sell you that night's concert. Mm-hmm. You know, afterwards, you just go out into the lobby and, right. and buy it. Um, so you know, why wouldn't they do the same thing with uh, film and video? You know, go go to their website and you can buy it, and then you know, try to stop anybody from. Taking Taking pictures. I've been to a few concerts, even recently, uh, King Crimson, for example, where they said no, no photography. Period, really, end of story. Yeah, and and to be, it wasn't so much of the oh, geez, you know, we've got to capture the uh, the moment. Uh, they let everybody pull their cell phones out at the last, uh, like the last number. Is that what they said? Uh, yeah, Go yeah. Ahead it was now. like <laughs> okay, you can do it now. Uh, uh, but um, uh, you know, it was just didn't interfere with the viewing from the audience. I mean, now with everybody having yeah. a, a camera, it just gets to be uh, really too much. So, All right, so throughout 1983, uh, you got addicted to smuggling a camera into shows and secretly taking shots. Tom Petty, the B-52s, Dave Edmonds. Um, but I want uh, you to talk about an obscure band called Checkered Past with, <laughs> with X-Pistol, Steve Jones, uh, Michael DeBar, uh, Clem Burke, uh, and Frank uh, Infante from Blonde, um, from Blonde, Blondie. Uh, uh, why was that show so special for oh you? Oh, my. So I mean, that's, I, a, that's a really obscure band. Yeah, right? no. I, a, a little bit of a super group, I guess. But uh, Yeah, you know. so... Uh, it's funny because I don't get asked a lot about the, the pictures of Checkered Pass in the book, so this is great. Um, I went to see well, them. I am the rock and roll archaeologist. Well, there I you go. Deep. Yeah, and it is a fascinating you know, group of people from, you know, they, they were sort of discards from all these bands. And I went to see them, got my camera in, and yeah, this was not a happy bunch of guys. Um, they clearly were sort of in shock at my opinion of sort of playing in this, you know, these were guys who'd been bands playing big arenas and stuff, and there were not a lot of people there and they didn't seem very happy about it. And they kind of took moments to slam their sort of former bands sort of in euphemistic, you know, terms. And then the, the biggest memory I have is that at the end of it, sort of trying to be punk rock, they encouraged everybody in the crowd to sort of get up on stage while they, with them. While How they many did, people were in the audience? Well, that's what I was going to say. It was about 20 people. So you, you ended <laughs> okay. up. So you can't possibly get everybody up well, on stage. Well, that's what happened though everybody got up on stage with them and they you had the sort of weirdness of them playing their final number in front of an empty club because everybody was on stage with them and that was sort of the final piece to the whole thing and yeah it was it was quite a show that um i like my pictures but yeah they they were not happy <laughs> they they did not seem happy like this was you know i just can't only imagine you know this was blondie you know shortly after blondie had been a huge band and yeah. obviously the sex pistols and yeah. you know yeah. uh so yeah not not a happy group of guys so uh also in 1983 you discover what would become another life 
lifelong addiction to you, uh, The Grateful Dead? Yeah, actually, I think that comes the next year, but uh, I, I think I, I might have seen my first Garcia band show, but it, it was... Oh, well, I think it was Garcia. Yeah, yeah, a, I a, saw a, Garcia, which Jerry was... Jerry band, yeah. Yeah, it was about two years later when I finally had that experience of going, oh my God, this is this is what I need to do now, see this band as much yeah. as possible. Yeah, yeah. So that, that came a couple years later, but I did see Garcia band and got some pictures I'm really happy with from seeing Jerry and enjoyed it, but it didn't, it didn't stick the way it did... Ironically, when I finally saw The Grateful Dead, I saw uh-huh. both Bobby and uh, Jerry. Bobby and the Midnights, right? Yeah, yeah. I saw uh-huh. Bobby and the Midnights and Jerry separately before, I think before I actually saw The Dead and and, and enjoyed those, but it really, you know, it's that whole experience mm-hmm. of the crowd and going with a group of friends and you don't necessarily get that with the smaller bands, but you do, or, you know, with Jerry Band or with, with Bobby, but you do when you see The Grateful Dead. I, I completely understand. It, it took me a couple of shows to kind of, yeah understand what this whole thing was about yeah you know the first time i'm like why are they tuning in between every song (laughs) that's just and then you come to realize oh they're not really tuning they're really actually having a conversation on what song they're going to do next right oh that's genius yeah Uh, you know uh, you know and of course you know the the uh the um uh the crowd that uh harkens back to uh you know the 60s yeah uh, and especially as a kid from the 80s you know you're like oh my god it's this is great. It's Woodstock. It's it's yeah. it's it's uh, Hate Ashbury. Oh, you know, right here, uh, uh, enclosed. Uh, so I can understand. So, are are you still a, a dead oh, fan? Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. I've I've have fall- you seen like the various incarnations I have, since Jerry's passing? Uh, you know? Absolutely. In fact, I with the Grateful Dead because we were in California. I didn't really go very far because you didn't have to. No, you, know, you could see every yeah, couple of months. Yeah, right? yeah, or, or you know, between <laughs> Southern and Northern California, yeah. or even going to Vegas. Um, in 2001, I sort of I followed Phil Lesh and friends all around the country. I kind of dropped out. I, I sort of burned out on the film business for a little bit. We're jumping way ahead, uh-huh. but and I went for about two months and followed them, and that was just fantastic because obviously it wasn't near on the scale of the Grateful Dead. So that was Dead. your midlife crisis. That yeah. was, that's what I told you. I said that's what I do. I go follow uh, the remnants of the Grateful Dead around the country. Yeah. So how many shows did you shoot during that period? Uh, uh, Grateful Dead uh, shows. Well, I didn't. I saw saw a lot. I saw about 110 Grateful Dead shows. Oh, with actually, Jerry. I think in the book you very quickly don't shoot. You like well, you, what, what that sort of all came towards the end where it was around the same combination of stuff where I was start. I was in film school now and I was having right. troubles as the rock and roll career was taking off. I needed to be studying film and they wanted me to shoot shows in L.A. and I had discovered the Grateful Dead. And I shot them the first couple of times, and then I just wanted to put the equipment down and dance. Yeah. And so I, I so there's a lot of Grateful Dead shows where I didn't photograph, and obviously the the farther along, you know, the, the less I photographed. I just wanted to go with my friends and dance and do the rest of what you do at a Grateful Dead concert. Mm-hmm. So you you also got to travel to Europe and shoot you yeah. too in hometown Dublin. Yeah. As, just as they're rising yeah. into what they now are uh-huh. uh, you know the superstar uh, band but this is this is uh, just as they're really uh, uh, in the hockey stick moment yeah, this is 83. I went to Europe and I went over to see them in Ireland and it was it was kind of an Irish homecoming. They hadn't played in about a year back in Ireland and it was just after the War album had come out and they had started to become international superstars and they came back and played this show and it was very emotional. I swear it was the only American in the crowd and it and it, it was the Edge's birthday. They brought a cake out on stage. I mean, very much a hometown show and and it felt like the return of the conquering heroes yeah so it was yeah. it was very very powerful show and it was an amazing lineup because it was also simple minds the eurythmics uh steel pulse it was just a great lineup of other bands with you two at the very top of uh of the lineup yeah yeah that must have been surreal oh it was it was fantastic and randomly when i was putting the book together i was trying to to narrow down um, for some reason, I didn't have my tickets in front of me the day to the show, so I, I Googled the show, and a Facebook page came up that was devoted – it was called Classic Dublin Gigs, and in it I found pictures from some of the professional photographers who had shot from the stage, and I found myself in the audience. Really? Yeah. I actually found a picture. I was looking at it, and I called my wife over, and I said, come here, come here. I said, that's me I, in the, in the Does crowd. Does it show you with a camera? It, you, you, you sort of see the, the camera strap over my shoulder, uh-huh. and, and, and but it's definitely me. 
Wow. Yeah, so that was really fine to find this sort of evidence, you know, all these years later later of me in the crowd. Yeah, you ended up uh, being there solo, but I don't think you you went to Europe uh, solo. Oh, no, I did. I I thought there was a couple of people that uh, Uh, you roomed uh, with. Well, I was supposed to go with a friend, and he canceled at the last minute. So I went by myself, and I met these two guys on the train from the airport. Americans. Uh, Americans who had yeah. flown in. They, I think they'd been on the same flight who had f- flown in and we decided uh, uh, had flown into London to get a room together. Mm. And, and we did that. And they, they were kind of an interesting pair. One of them had come over to look for a girl he was in love with, immediately found that she wasn't at the restaurant that was the only address he had. And so he got on the next plane and went back and then the other she gave him a fake phone number and he (laughs) flew all the way to europe to go and find her wow or or i think kind of romantic kind of dumb i I got the sense it was like an ex-girlfriend and she wasn't at the address anymore you know and then there you know it's not the internet or there was you know no way to cut it and then the other guy was going to be in london for a couple of days and was on his way to germany to study linguistics and as i write in the book he stuttered which i found very surreal that but it's a way to get over yeah uh, you know maybe uh you know all power to the people right? yeah no it was fine but it was just a funny juxtaposition that that's what he had chosen as his career and uh-huh. yeah, so yeah and you end up in dublin for right. for the show, for the big show right. i'm sure you shot pictures around london oh and all i did the great yeah rock and roll history that you find and there. and there were no there's no pictures in the book of it but i also saw dave edmonds in london i'd seen him previously mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in uh um in San Francisco, but there was like he played a little tiny place in London called the Red Lion Pub or something, and and I and I got to see him there too while I was there, and that was great. And I bought so many records because you know this is obviously way before the internet, and they just had all these wonderful record shops. They they all seem to be below street level, like yeah, you go yeah, downstairs. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I and I ended up I amassed such a collection of like rare stuff that I was finding. I had a bag at Victoria Station that I would go out, collect all my stuff, go back, get it out of the baggage clip, put more records in it, and then put it back in the baggage check because I just couldn't... It was too heavy to carry right, to my right, hotel. And just yeah. being, until until you had to, that flight to get home. Exactly. Right, right, right. right. So uh, was there much of a difference in uh, you know how uh, the security treated you in America versus uh, in Europe for those shows? I remember it was pretty easy to get into the, the U2 show um that was another thing that i figured out that you know when you when you shot a big show there were pluses and minuses and the plus was the security just because they were overwhelmed dealing with large crowds they didn't give you near as thorough a pat down and by then i'd gotten pretty good with how to hide stuff mm-hmm. um uh, the minus was getting close enough to take the pictures you wanted was harder because these were people you know more hardcore fans people who had been in you know, in some cases, if it was a big show, had been waiting all night. So you had to really fight to get your real estate. And, and you know, some people would kind of give you a dirty look as they saw you sort of, you know, doing that thing yeah, of yeah, inching yeah, up yeah, yeah, to yeah, the yeah, front. Yeah, yeah. So I'm one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Oh, man. So uh, the police, Talking Heads, Elvis Costello, Joan Jett, uh, David Bowie on Sirius Moonlight. Um, that is a lot of high fuel concerts in 1983. Yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I, w- I was busy, and you know, it's that wonderful thing of being a teenager that's obsessed. You know, yeah, you just—it's yeah. your whole life, and you have basically no other responsibilities. You know. So, what's your favorite memory of all that? Of that year, of particular? That year. Yeah. Probably the European stuff was that. That trip in Europe was pretty special. Yeah. Although, police had. The police at Shea Stadium was pretty magical too, because they were, you know, this yeah, is that's 80, huge. I they, mean, yeah, it's like trying to recreate the Beatles in Shea Stadium, and and, all uh, that, and, yeah. and you know, I when when I when I put the book together and started dealing with all these images and and started talking about it on the internet, by far those those pictures had the biggest reaction because apparently that show. Um, in their careers was after that they decided to break up the police after Shea Stadium because they were kind of like, where do we go from here? We just sold out, you know, Shea Stadium. So I had a lot of people reaching out to me who wanted to see the pic- more of the pictures because I have a lot of them uh, of the police. So that was interesting just to discover that the importance of that gig to people who were fans of the police. Right, right, right. So uh, did you uh, uh, trade through fan scenes or, uh, you know, how, how did they know? Oh, just these were friends. Uh, at, at college, right? Oh, no, 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 I'm talking about this is now. When, oh, when, now. When, now, oh, yeah. No, when, when, you know, so much of this project, when I stopped doing it in 87, this was just an archive that I carried around for 30 years and by the grace of God survived because right, there were a lot right. of dorm room moves and a lot of... Yeah, these are tangible. <laughs> this is, this is, this is, yeah. 
you know, actual uh, film yeah. uh, that you have to put in a box and, and carry it to wherever the next home is. Oh, yeah. Uh, I had to move. Uh, and it's not like just on your computer. No. Right? I mean, in, in the early 80s, I had a friend sort of sort of do a down and dirty scan of everything. And then obviously everything was rescanned for the book. But up until the early, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, this stuff was just negatives that I was carrying around. And thank God there wasn't a flood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. So now you're a freshman at CalArts. You moved down to Southern California. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about the Darlings of MTV, the band that seemingly was made in a laboratory <laughs> um, just for that channel, and that's Duran Duran. Yeah, okay. Well, this is kind of a long, crazy story, but I was not a huge fan of Duran Duran. But, you know, I knew them, and, you know, I was interested in anything going on with music. But all the girls were a huge fan of Duran. And and one guy who I knew at CalArts was obsessed with him. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I can't even describe, you would not believe the, the obsession. So he came to me and he knew I took photos and he said, look, I'll pay for the tickets. I'll pay for the gas, the car, everything. Will you go down and see Duran Duran with me and take pictures? I'm like, well, what do I got to lose? So we get down there and this is the forum uh, in early 1984. And like you said, yeah, it's just a fabulous pan- forum. Yeah. And, and it's just pandemonium. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Duran Duran is at their their peak with screaming girls. There's no tickets to be found anywhere. So we find one usher at the forum who says basically, hey, give me 50 bucks. I'll open a door and, and you guys will go. We give him 50 bucks. We go into the show and we don't have seats. So we're kind of milling around and I've got my equipment and I'm keeping it hidden. The lights go down. The screaming gets louder if possible. <laughs> um, and I pull out my camera and I start taking pictures as, as they're as they're performing. So I'm shooting away and the plan is to shoot some pictures from here and then move closer. Well, I'm a, we're a couple songs in and all of a sudden I feel this hand on my back and I turn around and there's two huge security guards standing there and they look at me and go, Duran Duran, group security, can you please come with me? So they grab me, they, they start to haul me out of the arena. My friend, like out of a cartoon, just disappears in a puff of smoke. He's of course, gone. Yeah. He wants no he, part yeah, of this. Yeah. <laughs> so, I am not getting in trouble. And God damn it, I want to see Duran Duran. <laughs> right. So they take me outside. They rip open my camera. They take the film. They take uh, everything. Now, by then, I had already gotten into the habit after I shot a roll of putting it in my shoe, a finished roll. So I had one roll that did survive. That's why there is yeah. a picture in the mm-hmm. book of Duran Duran. So they take everything from me and give me back my equipment. Now, they, they kind of loosen up. They realize I'm just a kid. I'm not, you know... I'm not really looking. You're to, not. Yeah, you're 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 not really uh, the nefarious uh, yeah. type that's going to print a million copies exactly. and send it out through the throughout the world. So right? so they decide I can go back into the show. So they they you know I'm outside the arena. They take me up to a door. They knock on the door. The door opens and it's the same guy that we had paid to get into the show. He sees me standing there with two security guards, thinks I've oh, ra- you've, yeah, you've, <laughs> you've ratted, ratted on him. Right, I've ratted right. on him. So he freaks out and he's trying to get the door shut. And, you know, and the security guys have no idea what's going on. And, you know, and I, I know exactly what's going on. So this guy won't let us in. And he slams the door and the two security guys are standing there and they start to have a conversation. What are we going to do with this guy? Well, one of them suggests, let's take him back in through the backstage area. Awesome. So, yeah. So I'm like, this is sounds like looking a, up. <laughs> this is looking good. So they start to march me towards the backstage area. And if you know where it is at the forum, it's sort of there's a runway mm-hmm. that goes down. So yeah. so they're they're sort of taking me around and we're getting closer. Then all of a sudden they get a call for another security incident. So they just abandoned me there. They're like, sorry, we got to go. You're, you're out of luck. And almost as quickly as my friend had disappeared, he reappears because he's watched me being taken away. He had left the show because he was so freaked out by what happened. So he thought well, I had that was been, nice of him. To keep an uh, eye on, well, you know, he, not well, just he, leave you. He, he thought I was being hauled away to jail. Yeah. So he reappears and he's completely flustered. I, of course, have just loved the whole thing. It was it was so comical. So th- that's where the the story basically ends. We we do a drive through and go back up to CalArts. So, <laughs> but the, a few pictures did survive. But that was Duran Duran. Yeah, that uh, that was a crazy moment. Uh, you know, maybe uh, I, you know, there's been boy bands that have uh, you know been manufactured. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, to to get that same reaction from um, uh, the female audience, mm-hmm. similar to uh, early Beatles, early Stones, that sort of thing. But right. That, that was like the last the rock and roll uh, band that uh, that garnered that sort of um, yeah. of just unbelievable um, attention, uh, especially uh, on the... the the women's side of things, so. and it's amazing they're still out yeah, there playing out there. all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. same. Uh, I think the only the guitar player is not with them these days. Yeah, uh, I know the that there's guitar player. I yeah. know there was a time when they all were back, and yeah, then yeah, because yeah, I have yeah. another friend who's a big fan, so he sort of fills me in on their history. Yeah. 
So how, how many, uh, well, uh, not that anyone needs this sort of education at present time, <laughs> but how many different ways are there to sneak in a camera? Oh, my God. You know, as, as, I, as I said the first time, it was spontaneous and the tube socks saved me. As I got more sophisticated, I started taping stuff you know, uh, to, to my the body. magic duct tape. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I hate to admit it, but I kind of had a, some pretty wide, uh, I don't want to say bell bottoms, but I had some pretty wide pant cords that I wore probably for too long in the 80s that helped me. And then eventually I got to a point where I got an old Navy coat that hung down to my ankles and I modified it. Oh, an old it. coat, yeah. Right, yeah. and mm-hmm. I modified it so I could the equipment could hang inside of the coat and go down to, to basically the hem. Yeah. And that was fantastic because they would do the pat down and they wouldn't go below basically, you know, they wouldn't even go down to your knees. Right. So that was where I would hide so all little, kinds of getting stuff. Getting a little too close to the nether regions. Right. right. And I would use the nether regions too. That was another area you could you could hide film canisters and stuff like that because they weren't going to pat you there. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. 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 Now they got the, the wand. And, yeah. Uh, so there's good luck with that. So. Well, it's, it's funny. There's a, there, uh, uh, I've, uh, there's a couple of shows coming up that I have tickets to that I'm sort of contemplating trying to sneak in, uh, see if I can get away that I oh, know. So it's, you uh, still have the, I want to see if I can do it. I want to see if I can get in the 35 millimeter. Yeah. Have you done it since then? So, so you're now thinking about it. I, uh, I've brought in a lot of little digital cameras to a lot of shows and even some that you weren't supposed to photograph, but that's no big challenge. Like sometimes yeah. even those you can dump it as you're going in, you know, through yeah, the, the, yeah. uh, um, you know, as they're wanding you, because they, they're not really paying attention. I, it's the big rig. I want to see if I can do it one last time. So, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll yeah, have to get back on us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was well, successful. Or one not. of the shows I'm going with my wife, and she's like, "I don't want you to yeah. get caught." Let's in not front say of which me. show it is. No. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you get caught, I'll meet you at the car afterwards. <laughs> exactly. Right. 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 Yeah, it, it sounds like you had a real thing for a Bay Area local band that never achieved the rock and roll dream called uh, Eddie and the Tide. Yes. Yeah. So really, what do you think? Why do you think they did? They never made it? You know, it's, it's again, speaking from my perspective, it's a tough and business. And why did you love them so much? I, I loved them because it was kind of like the band that. It, it was the one local band that when you went to see them, there was a huge crowd. So it mm-hmm. felt like you were, you know, you were seeing a regular thing and, and they actually had an album out. So you knew the songs, you know, usually when you go see a local band, you don't really know their music. You're just sort of trying to enjoy it. And there's 30 people there. They felt like a real band coming and it just you were sure they were going to break out. Yeah. You know, so it just it was kind of cool. It was, you know, so you could say it was like seeing, you know, the Beatles at the Cavern or, or you know, Springsteen at the bottom line. You were going to be able to have that experience and they didn't. And why? You know, it's just. It's rock and roll. It's like, why do some hit and some don't? You know? Yeah, they, it, it, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to figure that out, and uh-huh. you know, and of course, uh, you know, you've been told for decades that uh, you know the suits, oh, they've got it all figured out. Don't we right. know which ones are the ones to sign and right. which ones are the ones to leave behind? No, they don't really <laughs> yeah. know either. Yeah, it's all a big gamble. Um, I listened to some of the the tunes because of your your book, and um, you know, they definitely belong in that mid eighties. Yeah, sort oh, of, they're they're very uh, much a product uh, of their time. Yeah, 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 a little. I can I can hear a little of that that authentic Bruce uh, John Mellencamp sort of uh-huh. like you know you know I'm telling you the way it is, kid. Uh, uh-huh. Sort of uh, lyrical content, uh, you know, a little Huey Lewis uh, sort of thing which again comes out of the yeah. bay area so yeah so but uh yeah they just you know, just for one reason or another it uh it just didn't happen yeah so. they, and there's a lot of bands like that yeah, yeah they did i think they're and i only actually found this out because of my wife they did have a song on the soundtrack to um Oh, God, what's the vampire movie that was shot in Santa Cruz? Oh, Lost Boys. Lost Boys, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of their peak. Mm-hmm. you know. And I think they did get a record deal, but I don't think anything came of the record they made, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think they're still out, or he's still out. Are uh, they doing doing some things? Huh. Uh, I, I, yeah, I haven't yeah. I haven't followed where, where they ended up after yeah. the '80s. Google. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on June 25th, 1984, at Wolfgang's in San Francisco, oh, you yeah. outlaw photograph the greatest band in the history <laughs> of rock and roll, the band that was always so far ahead of the musical curve. <laughs> they were about to skid uncontrollably and crash into their very deaths. Um, that band is Spinal Tap. Yes, without a doubt, one of my all-time favorite yeah, tell us, Tell us about what must be seared or or maybe abused into your very soul of rock and roll. Well, 
and again, this is covered in the book. If you were as obsessed with rock and roll in the 80s, you, you cannot underestimate what it was when this movie came out. Oh, it was like uh, everything yeah. you yeah. loved. And, and hated. So, and, and we're like, are they talking about me? Uh, you <laughs> know, it, it, was, it was just pitch perfect. And the movie had come out and was a sensation. And within a month of the movie coming out, they put together this really quick little tour where they played San Francisco and I think maybe one show in L.A., and it was just incredible. I, I got in to see them, got my equipment in. And Which was one of the hardest tickets to oh, get, oh, I was, think you was, say in the book. Yeah, it's like, it, it was, was it unbelievable. Was, it was unbelievably difficult. I got in, I got my equipment in, and the show was just incredible. And you couldn't tell who was having more fun, the audience or the performers, because I'm sure they could not believe that this made-up band with this movie that had quickly become a sensation, that they were now performing live. You know, and They were loving it, and what was also interesting because they did tour later they did later tours yeah yeah but what was really unique about this they had little to find t- a drummer but sure <laughs> right what was unique about this this moment was that it was like they had jumped off the screen because they looked exactly like they did in the movie when you saw them later there was always this weird effect where they got older but the hair was the same because they wore the same <laughs> wigs so when you and, and there's still a lot of fun but it wasn't i mean this was just the movie come to life and i remember the there was a review in the paper the last day that the next day that just summed it up the best. And it said, if you miss this show, go ahead and kick yourself. Mm-hmm. It was that much fun. And adding to it also as a rock and roll photographer, when they did Stonehenge, you know, the famous Stonehenge number, there was a rock and roll photographer who in the Bay Area who was a professional who was well known, who was a short person. And he came out and did the did the dance for oh, that. So oh, that was okay. special that he came out. And it was funny because he was shooting the show. I remember seeing him on the stage photographing. And then, sure enough, when it came for that number, he put on the shoes and the hat. And he came out and did the dance for yes. Stonehenge. So, the little people. Right. right, right and it was right. just – so that just, you know, for us in the photography crowd was extra special to see that they had chosen him to do it. And he had done it. Yeah, I, I believe uh, you uh, are going to go and see one of them tonight, Derek Small. That is – correct i was Who's a, still out on the road and yeah still you know as he, he's calling it lukewarm water live <laughs> <laughs> if you remember from the film the one of them he says one of them is fire the other is ice and i'm in between, between, between lukewarm water, water. <laughs> yeah so i'm very much looking forward to that all right so uh shooting you two again at bill graham uh civic uh-huh. and uh, now bill graham civic yeah uh, in 1984 uh changed your game um because let's talk about you now going pro. Um, you worked for, I think, both Artist Magazine and BAM Magazine. Right. I, I, I shot uh, a fair because amount. Of, because of this show. Well, well, indirectly, what, what, what had happened was I had started, uh, you know, as I had built up all of this guerrilla photography, as you called it, um, or outlaw photography, um, I built up a portfolio. So, you know, at the age of 20 or 21, I thought, well, I should do something with this. I had a portfolio and I I typed up a list and I remember I had this old typewriter that was an old mechanical that was so old that every time you hit a a, a period, it would punch a hole in the paper. <laughs> it was that old of okay. a, yeah, that, that I used and I typed up this list and Artist Magazine hired me and I started uh, doing uh, professional gigs for them. So now you had credentials. Right. Mm-hmm. And then from this U, this U2 show, I took a picture at this show of Bono that I went to an open call that BAM magazine had, and I brought my portfolio That's in. a pretty cool picture. Yeah, it's a, this great picture of him pointing into the crowd. They used to do this thing where they would pull somebody up out of the crowd and give him the Edge's guitar and teach him a chord, and they would strum it, and then they would all leave and leave this person on stage. And I, and I caught the moment where Bono was selecting the person. So I had this great picture, and I remember I had the meeting with BAM, and they're going through my book. And they're like, wow, these are great. They're great. Then they stop on the page of this photo of, of, of Bono. And they're looking at it. And it was, it was two uh, art directors or photo editors. And they kind of look at it. And they look at each other. And then one of them turns to me and says, we did a cover on Bono a couple of weeks ago. And we couldn't find a good picture. If we'd had this picture, this would have been our cover. Mm. So needless to say, they, they hired me on the spot. And I was now, you know, now going to be an assignment photographer for, for BAM. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So, yeah. good and bad, as we'll find out yeah. uh, going forward. But 
Okay, so, uh, you know, all kidding aside about Spinal Tap, mm-hmm. uh, probably the biggest game changer for rock and roll in the 1980s, we, we have to discuss uh, the Prince show that yes. you shot. Uh, you got to see uh, the Purple Rain Tour at the Fabulous Forum uh, mm-hmm. February 24th, 1985. And I, and I believe this is where you took your all-time favorite shot. Yeah, uh, this is Prince in the Purple Rain area, uh, pur- Purple Rain area, era, <laughs> Purple Rain era, and this was the closest to Beatlemania that I had experienced because I was in college now and I can remember even more so than the Duran Duran yeah because because Duran Duran was a phenomenon with kids but he wasn't they weren't everywhere like you know like as I'm about to like there was the one guy who was obsessed in college when Purple Rain hit I can remember walking through the dorm and hearing that album coming out of every room at a different place Mm -hmm, on the mm -hmm, album mm -hmm. it wasn't that way with Duran Duran people knew who they were but it was confined you know it's like no offense to them, but like One Direction or one of those where they're hitting a, a sweet spot. It wasn't like, you know. It wasn't ubiquitous. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, and right. It wasn't ubiquitous. And Prince also had the number one movie. I mean, yeah, it was, it was yeah, you yeah. know. So um, when he came to town, I was going to be damn sure to be there. And You were going to party like it was 1999. <laughs> exactly. And 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember I, I was so excited for the show, I bought a brand new high-powered telephoto lens. And it came the night before the show, so I really didn't get a chance to, to do much with it. I sort of played to make sure it worked, you know, photographically. Well, the next day in the parking lot, I'm getting ready to go into the show, and um, I'm trying to put it in all the different places that I would hide equipment, and the lens is too darn big to fit anywhere. It's just too big of a lens. So fortunately, I had gone to this show with a female friend, and I got this brilliant idea of this was the 1980s, and women's hair was really big. Big hair. And she always carried with her um, a can of um, Aquanet. Of course. So we hid the lens in her purse under the can of Aquanet, and we went up to security. I remember walking in, and the guard is sort of looking at her like, what is this Big bag and with there's some cylinder, cylinder yeah. in there. Okay. So, so sure enough, we get up there. The guard opens it, looks in, sees the Aquanet, says, oh, fine, go on in. And, and I went on in and shot, like you said, uh, some of my favorite photos, including my favorite photo ever at the Prince show. Yeah. Why is that your favorite photo? It just it, – it, it perfectly captures – Prince and it's a it's a moment where Prince has sort of got his hand up and he's in the classic guitar pose about ready to make a a mighty strum on the guitar but because it's Prince there's a big pink boa mm-hmm. that's flowing and I just thought that just captures who that man is. Uh, I, I have to agree. It's a, it's a pretty stunning photograph. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, you, it's you, my favorite. Yeah, I can see why. Uh, and you know, it's you know we we just recently lost uh, Prince and um, you know uh, he is. That picture is is everything. It's uh, it's it's that singular moment, uh, um, and and there may be others uh, taken around that time, but right at that moment, I mean, that is the the height, the the peak of of his powers. Oh uh, no right question, and it, and it comes across in that photograph. Oh so. great, thank you. Um, so was uh, the eighty five Howard Jones gig uh, the first where you had to abide by the rules? Of the time for professional photography. Yeah, it was my first arena show. I had shot other club shows, and it was the first time I shot an arena where I was in the pit okay. and all that. And yeah, and it was very strange to walk up to an arena with my camera back over my shoulder because I knew I, you know, instead I had... of getting turned away, you're like, uh, <laughs> yeah. yes, okay, that door over there, exactly. And you know, I, I I went in the pit, and you know, with the other, it was the first time I sort of met the other big Bay Area photographers, and I remember them kind of looking at me like, who's, who's this kid? kid? Right. Yeah, I'm like 20 years old. And, uh, and you know, you're only supposed to shoot three songs and they want you out of the pit. So the whole thing was just, it was weird. It was just not, I, 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 I kind of missed the excitement. Well, I did miss the excitement. There was, it was no excitement. It was <laughs> yeah, a job. It now. was a job. <laughs> though, though the later I had to shoot bands that I didn't like, and I'm not going to give any of those names, I did like Howard Jones. So at least there was the fun of that, that at least it was a performer I was interested in. But I certainly missed, yeah, the challenge. And, you know, they didn't want you to shoot more than three songs. They wanted you to leave. And most of the other photographers did. I hung around and still shot a few more shots from the audience just sort of almost for old time's sake but that's the first time where maybe you're beginning to think uh maybe photography is not my future (laughs) or or at least not the professional aspect of the rock and roll because it's as i mentioned a moment ago that when you you know everybody that I went to see and went to all these lengths to smuggle in the equipment were bands that I loved. You loved them. Yeah, so the passion was right. there uh, from the get-go. Exactly. And then when it becomes bands you're not quite as interested in, 
it 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 takes it take, and you don't have the excitement of you know getting around security. Yeah, it definitely became was starting to become something different. Well, you know there are drugs for that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk about your William Miller from Almost Famous uh, moment when Rolling Stone oh, uh, yes, called yes. Uh, you about your photos. Yeah, I, I had shot uh, another festival up in, up in the mountains, shot a bunch of stuff and gotten home late at night and about 8 o'clock in the morning, my yeah, phone... Yeah, this is Calaveras County Fair. Yeah, right? yeah. They, they would have the Mountain yeah, Air yeah, Festival yeah. every, every year. Um, and it, you know, it was a couple hours and I'd drive up there. Um, so yeah, I'd gotten back late the night, you know, the night before and my phone rings at about 7 or 8 in the morning and I stupidly answered it. And I hear this voice on the other side go, this is so-and-so from Rolling Stone magazine. I sort of shoot up in bed. And she says, we have your list here. Um, I wanted to talk to you about some of your photographs. And it was that same list I was telling you that I had typed up with the, the you know, the, the, the yeah, well, typer the, yeah, that, uh, punching the hole in the right. paper. Mm-hmm. And and this woman rattles off, you know, very business, very fast, rattles off. We were interested in talking heads, Tom Petty, Huey Lewis. And I'm just sort of like writing this down. And I can tell that as the conversation is going on, she's getting more impatient because she realizes she's talking to a kid you know she's expecting like somebody, uh, yeah. somebody older <clears throat> again you should have done the william uh, miller right oh, yes uh, this is a william miller <laughs> exactly so so she's getting more impatient and then she starts to give me fedex information and i've never sent anything to anybody on fedex before let alone on their account you know so i i start to you're say, giving me your account you know i can use this well uh, no really. i I'm, I'm more saying like so you want me to to pay to she's like no that's the account number we're paying for it and then she basically yeah, this like, is rolling stone get your, get your act together <laughs> exactly so basically that's where the sort of the conversation ended and she hung up you know very quickly and then i sort of was sitting there going did that just happen and then i looked down at my notes and you know i had written the stuff down so yeah that was my my encounter with rolling stone and i shipped off the the pictures that day mm-hmm. did you hear back from them i don't believe i ever heard back it's okay. one of those things that you know it, it a, a lot of stuff because this all goes back 30 years a, a lot of stuff is lost in my memory like i i was going through a lot of paperwork uh look that i had found when i was pulling out the negatives that i'd saved and there was stuff like that had been sent to spin magazine by artist met like stuff i didn't even remember that they had purchased photos and just stuff i didn't remember so i they may have responded i don't even remember it's kind of been lost i remember the story of them calling me mm-hmm. beyond that i can't remember exactly what happened but again a, a, another instance where i'm sure in you know your mind you're beginning to say is this really what i want to do well I was thrilled by this. This was exciting. The The real problem, like I said, was the, the calls to do shows that I wasn't as interested in and the eventual conflict with my I was even though this was really taking off, I was going to be a filmmaker. I'm not, you know, again, it's being it's being young where you're like, you just do everything. You're not. Yeah. You know, it didn't occur to me that no, this is actually going pretty well, you know? Yeah. 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 So uh, we, we talked a little bit about it earlier when we brought up The Grateful Dead, but uh, mm-hmm. there's that Ventura uh, Fairgrounds show, yeah. uh, you know, and always a great place to see the dead. Yeah. Uh, and and during the second show, you had shot the show before, the day before. Right. You'd had plenty of, of, of pictures. And, and, and I totally understand what uh, you mean in the book when you say, hey, they don't really change a lot from day to day. <laughs> yeah. So it's not that exciting. You're not going to get something that's going to make you go, wow, yeah, that's just... amazing, because it looks just like it did the day before. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, I, I'm going to assume you've done this without chemical and enhancement um <laughs> maybe not uh but uh, uh more importantly your, your life changes in an instant yeah um uh there were there were many dead shows with chemical enhancement but this was not one of them this mm-hmm. moment happened out of it it was it was the first set of the the next the second show where i just went i just want to put the equipment down and dance mm-hmm. and that really was the the moment sort of like i was pretty well on my way to being a deadhead but that's kind of where it all came together sort of when you you have that first moment where you feel free enough to dance you know yeah. where you're in a, you know that's yeah. one of the joys of the grateful dead is that it's 10 and you don't 000. care what everybody right yeah, nobody's gonna look at you and, and nobody uh, cares and, themselves yeah, they're having yeah. a good time yeah. you know and that and that's a very freeing thing and that like that's when it sort of hit me and the whole experience of that weekend it was you know i went with four friends we slept on the 
beach. You know, it was all those wonderful things that, that go with the, you know, with being young and seeing the Grateful Dead. And so yeah. it all really coalesced in that moment on that weekend for me. And and then that was basically kind of the end of outlaw photography. Yeah, you, the, the, I, I still had, I was still doing a little more. The, the final incident that cinched it was something that happened at a Springsteen show where I'll just briefly, uh, I wasn't shooting it professionally, but I still was shooting other shows professionally. And I, yeah, that was it, October 2nd. Uh, of, 1985, right? Uh, um, Church of Bruce. Exactly. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, this was a big show and I brought, I got 20 rolls of film in and I, I started photographing and I'll sort of tell this quickly, but something happened mechanically to my camera during the show. And basically all but two rolls came out blank. I had 18 blank rolls of film. And I just went, you know what, this is... You, this, you had done this as, again, as Outlaw. You'd Yeah, this was an Outlaw, right. even though it wasn't a show I'd been assigned to do, and it was Springsteen, so I thought, oh, this will be great, I'll do it, you know, for, for, for fun again. And I took that as the sign that I couldn't sustain the film. I was still studying film, and I, and I was getting all these calls to shoot shows in L.A. And I said, this is it, this is the sign I've been looking for, and I pretty much hung it up after that. I, I had oh, a you few... listened to the universe right there. So. <laughs> again, the Grateful Dead. You know, it, it was the combination <laughs> of dead shows and also wanting and Bruce and, and Bruce. And I still had a few more shows left that I shot that I had assignments yeah, that I agreed yeah. to. I shot, I think, like Nick Lowe and, and the Untouchables and maybe Los Lobos. And they're in the book. But then after that, that was when I was done. And I pretty much if I used to keep again, they're in the book lists of all the shows I went to. And if you looked at the pages after this, it suddenly just becomes Grateful Dead, Grateful Dead, Grateful Dead. <laughs> all the other all the other shows disappear. Yeah. So you you, you make the career decision. Yeah. Uh, no Rolling Stone magazine. No, no Annie Leibovitz or uh. Uh, Mick Rock or Armand Gallo or uh, Jim Marshall or Henry Diltz for you. Right. Uh, the, the last show as an outlaw photographer was was Church of Bruce. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty much it. I, I think I, I might have taken the equipment in to see the dead a couple times after that just for fun, you know, in terms of as not yeah. with passes. Well, dead but, show, you can get just about anything. Yeah, there, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. So that's not that special, Yeah, <laughs> the sneak stuff. Yeah, I, I, I did. I'll just tell really a, a very quick little story about shooting at a dead show about a year or two later. I was I was done with all this, but I we had particularly good seats, so I thought, oh, I'll bring in my equipment. So I s smuggled in my equipment, and we're in about the, the fourth or fifth row over on Phil's side, if you remember the, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. so oh, I know exactly. What yeah, you're yeah. So I'm taking pictures over there, and I decide, well, I want to go back and get sort of a, a wide shot of the whole band. So I go to the back about 30 or 40 rows back, and I'm standing dead center, and I'm taking pictures, and a guard comes over to me. And, and, you know, I, he's going to start hassling me. And I turn to him and say, hey, I just want to take a couple of pictures and then I'll go back to my seat. In the music, he mishears me and he says, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go up to the front. You got 10 minutes. So I'm like, okay. So, oh, so, I'm thinking your yeah, credentials. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right, right, so right. I'm like, okay. So he, I go up to the front and I'm literally like, you know, up in the barrier. Right on the like, rail. Right. right on the rail. Yeah. Taking, and so I got, uh, there's actually is one picture in the book from that shoot. I had to put it in because it's such a uh, picture I like. So that was just kind of a funny incident where I wasn't even trying. And the guy was like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So. Well, I, I think I already know the answer to my next question uh, because we kind of hit on it a couple of times. Do you miss it? So apparently you do. Yeah, I, I, I miss it. I, I honestly wish I hadn't stopped. It's one of those things looking back like I should have done them both, even though it was getting hard. But, you know, you're young. I don't know. I, it, it, as we were saying earlier, I went to CalArts, so it was 30 miles to get into yeah. L.A. So, you know, it did oh, take Oh, don't tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you know, yeah. But, no, I, I do regret it. And, and I, yeah, I just, I don't no, it was just one of those things that I, I wish I had continued with it. Particularly looking back on it, but but it but it is nice. It's it's been so nice to revisit all these memories and realize how fun it was. Yeah, how did you put the book together? Well, it it it, it kind of touches on a little bit of a sad thing. Uh, when Prince and Bowie passed away, I just put In pictures. Two thousand sixteen. Yeah. yeah, I just put some pictures up on Facebook to to memorialize them and just you know because I had these pictures and all of a sudden I got inundated by all these people going, "Why do you have these pictures? What's the story here?" And there was one person in particular, I'll throw his name out there, Andrew Diggs, who knew me at CalArts, who reminded me of some of the stories I had told him then. And, you know, back then when I was in the thick of it, you'd come in my in my dorm oh, room yeah. and my pictures were everywhere. You know, they were on the wall. There were, you know, stuff was just out on the counter. So he was the one who, who suggested I do a book. And initially I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then when I really thought about 
being able to incorporate the stories and the smuggling in of the equipment, I thought, okay, that's unique. That's a different story. Mm -hmm. And so that's when it really took off. But I have him to thank. And because of Facebook, because of people going, why do you have these pictures? You know? Yeah. 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 Now, of course, you can't even recreate the experience, uh, nor would you want to. Uh, But back in the day, even in the 80s, a a rock concert was still thought of as a magical experience. I mean, you know, because you couldn't just everybody bring a, a photograph right. in you know it, it was it was incredibly special if you did have something like that so um you know the the people on the stage are gods uh, the the audience feels as if they're just lucky to be there and we've mm-hmm. hit on some of those stories personally yourself mm-hmm. uh, and i'm sure a lot of our audience uh, understands what we're talking about here yeah you know uh, is there is there any way to kind of feel like that today <laughs> You know, I'm sure it, uh, you know, one of the reasons that rock and roll, or I believe rock and roll has survived this long is that it reinvents itself. It means something Mm -hmm. different to each generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't listen to a lot of contemporary music. And I shouldn't in a lot of ways. It's really a, an art it's form of the young. For the, for the youth, right. Yeah. And so my music made no sense to my dad and my son's music will make no sense to me. And it kind of should be that way. So I think they're having th- – this generation will have its own experiences where they'll be moved by a particular show the way I was, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there were things that were unique to this time that I think helped, you know, and you sort of touched on it, that – one of the things was the difficulty of even finding out about tours. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like you yeah. just went on a website, you know. No, no, I, you, I, you had to read the paper, and then, then it was like, oh, my gosh, it, 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 for me, thing, it, For me, it was Rolling Stone. I mean, yeah. I would be at – there was a Tower Records in, in Palo Alto where I grew up uh-huh. that was like the hub for all rock and roll. And when that issue came out, I think it was Wednesday or whatever, I was there as soon as it hit the newsstand because you would see who was touring. I mean, that was the only way to find out. When I went to Europe to shoot those shows, I had to get uh, – And you the know, NME. And, and me an imported copy of it exactly that was it there was no other way to find out yeah 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 whereas today you yeah know, it, it's you know it's everything is uh, available uh, google in, it and there you in go a, in, a, in a smartphone that uh, you know everybody carries around with them yeah so. um you know what would you suggest uh, to any budding photographers out there today on how to get that perfect shot uh, when they do pull out the camera to show. The the one bit of advice, because I have been asked that, and that I so learned So they can is, do it quickly and then put it away. <laughs> right. Um, no, just if you want to, you know, it's like this in anything, but with with rock photography, I found shoot as much as you can and shoot the, you know, don't don't be a snob. Shoot the smaller bands because when, when, the, when there's nothing at stake, because when everything's at stake, what you learned shooting the smaller bands will mm, come back to help. Because okay. mm-hmm. that, you know, I had, I shot a lot. Of, I, there's even a band in there that was, it was actually the brother of the guy who was obsessed with Duran Duran. He had a band called Haven that are also in the book that I included that I shot them at the Troubadour at an eight o'clock on a Tuesday. Yeah, I you think know. there's some shots in the book yeah. That, yeah and and that was a great you know it was a learning exp- you know it was all part of all of it you know and so that's my you know d- don't don't turn down any chance to shoot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that you, is your number one advice yeah and now you have no excuse you know back then you had to pay for processing and, oh yeah printing it was now expensive. Yeah, yeah it was i developed my own black and white um, so that made it a little cheaper but mm-hmm. yeah the color was expensive yeah well I, I, at cal arts uh, i'm sure all the labs were there and uh, you could get in there and yeah you go down and film mm-hmm. you know, so it was a little bit easier uh, for you yeah although i think we had to pay for our own chemicals i don't no, remember the school been, paying for the chemicals <laughs> you had the space but i don't think they paid for the chemicals so what's up next for you julian well you know as i said i went into the film business so i'm you know i've been promoting this book the, the last few months and it's been it's been great the reaction's just been fantastic and then, you know, my, my day job is my writing. Um, I have a novel that I wrote a few years ago, very different subject um, about the world of live television in the 1950s before there was videotape. Everything on TV was live and almost all of it. Like out of, a My Favorite Year sort of uh, thing? Exactly. Very much in the flavor of that. And that book, the book is in development to be a TV series. So that uh-huh. that's going on. And I'm once I get done with the promotion of this, I have another novel about Hollywood in the 1930s that I'm in the process of finishing up. And I'm hoping to have done in the next six months, at least a, a first draft. Wow, it sounds very exciting. Yeah, well, trying to keep busy. Well, we hope to see uh, some of that out there. Hey, it was a pleasure having you with us today on Deeper Digs in Rock, Julian Stone. Oh, my pleasure. Great to talk with you.
Wow, great stories all. I'm surprised we didn't run into each other back in those heady times uh, when rock and roll was king and every week a legendary act was coming through town. As he and I discussed, with everyone now being an outlaw photographer with a smartphone, uh, the allure is gone. And, and I think most of you would agree that is not the only thing missing in today's carefully planned slick arena shows. So, go out and grab No Cameras Allowed, My Career as an Outlaw Photographer, 1981-1987, by Julian David Stone. You will not be disappointed. And I might add, going through the book many times while preparing for our discussion, he really had good taste in music. Even as a youngster, all the artists presented are pretty fucking cool and ended up being legendary. Okay, we will see you diggers out there. I am the rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a Pantheon podcast. Until next time, keep up the rockin'. Hey diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.